Welcome to the Chris Sidwell Show, uh, a standard history show after a couple of fantastic interviews from Chris recently. And we're going to talk about a race that I was aware of, but which ended really before I got deeply into my kind of passionate phase about the sport. And it's a race with a long and storied history that takes us right back to the early days of cycle racing. We're going to talk about Bordeaux Paris today, aren't we, Chris? Yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, Bordeaux Paris... um... People, yes, it ended in 1988, uh, but it was a classic. We're talking about it now because it was always run in May. It was called the Derby of the Road. Um, it had massive followings um, as a personal connection because Tom Simpson won it in 1963, and I'm going to talk about that later. But in my book, uh, it's I've got the police figures for the crowds, and there was 1.5 million people in the last 60 kilometres when wow. Tom won watching it and 32,000 in the Parc des Princes stadium where Bordeaux Paris always ended and the Tour of France always ended yeah. uh, paid to watch the riders end this this race um Absolutely stunning. I mean, the thing that gets me is there's this and there's uh, Paris-Brest-Paris as well. And they're the two indicators of, now we talk about, you know, short, hard stages being the best and, you know, the most extravagant climbs and all that kind of thing. The equivalent back then used to be just sheer distance. Yeah, that's what fascinated people. And just think about it. This was all in one go. This was way before stage racing. The first Bordeaux-Paris was 1891. 358 miles. That's it's a short haul flight. It's a long <laughs> train journey. It's twice the distance of Milan San Remo. Yeah, I mean Milan it's San Edinburgh. Remo would just be a warm up for it. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's Edinburgh to London going the pretty way, and all done in one. And even in the 1960s, when racing speeds had come up in 1970s, the riders had to start at two o'clock in the morning so they'd finish at a, a, a reasonable time. Um, in the afternoon in Paris. Well, I've got a friend, a physiotherapist here in Peebles, who's done uh, Paris-Brest-Paris four times. He's quite an old bloke. Oh. Uh, and he's done it once on fixed gear, which oh. is absolutely insane. And the last time he finished on a woman's shopping bike because his bike broke. <laughs> um, but what he talked about was just going through stages of almost hallucination. Because when you say no and stop... They weren't necessarily riding it all in a one They might get off the bike and have a wee bit of a snooze in a ditch or get off for food yeah. or whatever. That must have been just a hotbed for whatever stimulants they could lay their hands on. Yeah, well, yes. Um, and, and there is a, 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 from early in its history, there's a story about um, the second English winner. The first, first Bordeaux Paris was won by an Englishman. Um, the second Englishman was Arthur Linton. And uh, by then, that was 1896, by then, um, cycling was much more professional and riders sort of, it was a way for people, working class people to make make money. Mm -hmm. Um, And trainers got involved. The trainers uh, looking after riders were were on a percentage of what the riders won. So it it benefited the trainer if their rider won. And there was a famous... um, guy called Choppy Warburton. He sounds like something from a Sherlock Holmes um, story. I can just imagine him in kind of dishevelled tweeds with a waistcoat on. Well, actually, yeah, he did. Yeah, he he would wear that when he was training. But uh, appearing at races, he often appeared in a top hat and a quite smart suit. He he carried a um, a, a doctor's bag. And this doctor's bag, he was always very secret what, what was in it. And poor... Arthur Linton, uh, it was a hard race. His bike kept breaking. He had to fix it. and um, he, 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 But he was, he was a really good rider. And there's an account that says when he got to tour, the, um, 
the control check at Tour because in these early in the town of Tour these early um, races had control points. The first Bordeaux Paris had fourteen towns and villages. A book with 14 towns and villages in it. Mm-hmm. And the competitors had to have their books stamped in these villages. Um, so when they got there, they said that Linton had got glassy eyes and he was tottering, you know, he was hardly riding his bike. And he struggled on to Orléans, where Choppy Warburton was waiting for him, and gave him a rub down, reached his bag and administered all sorts of things for him. And Linton got up like Popeye after his spinach and won by 18 minutes. That sounds more like horse training than rider training. (laughs) Actually, I mean, you mentioned there he was the second Englishman to win. How on earth have we got a race from the southwest of France up to Paris uh, being initially dominated by English folk? I mean, how did they they end up... I mean, one, who was the first winner? Because there's some other classic names. I mean, names which are straight out of Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. But how did English folk end up winning these races in France? Um, well, it, it, there was a lot of there was road racing in England at that time. Um, it's only when England and Britain went insular after this incident um, where there was a race promoted by the North Road Cycling Club and um, a bunch race. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, 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 the riders startled a, a horse drawing a carriage with some lady in it who had a lot of clout. She made a complaint to the police. And uh, the governing body, the National Cycle Union, fearing that the police, because there was no official laws about whether you could ride a bike on the road even, might ban all forms of cycling, Mm -hmm. they banned mass start road racing on the open road. And it was after that when Britain became much more insular and they only could do time trials on open road. Uh, But early on, British cyclists took part in European races and... um, you know, the first Paris-Roubaix and the first uh, of all sorts of races. So we could uh, have had a culture like Belgium if, we, if it hadn't been for that lady in her carriage. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. It was a great diver. It was one of your sliding door moments. Um, yeah. The first winner was George Pilkington Mills. He, he was invited because he was he was already setting records um, for, for long distances. And there was a fascination with distance racing because the newspapers that organised road race in, in Europe um, were vying for circulation. So they'd each try to outdo each other. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was how the, the races got longer and longer and longer. Um, and the, to make it international as well, the inter, they, French organisers uh, invited four or five of these North Road uh, riders. And the first winner was George Pilkington Mills, who had a fascinating career just outside outside of cycling as well. He was an engineer. He went on to work in the cycle industry. Mm. He uh, enlisted towards the end of the um, 18th cent- 19th century and were, became a major. He went back into uh, industry, enlisted again in the, in the First World War, became a lieutenant colonel and won the, the DSO and was mentioned in dispatches three times. God, that's boys own comic stuff. Fantastic, yes, and uh, and his name. I mean, George Pilkington Mills, fantastic. Second place was Montague Holbein. <laughs> uh, and they they race. This this sort of explains how uh, Bordeaux Paris uh, went on and adapted into more modern times. Those early races were always paced. And uh, it, it paid you to have really you know, human pace, not motorbike pace or anything like that. 
And um, George Pilkington Mills, because he had a bit of money behind him, was able to afford to pay some really good good paces, which was one of the reasons why he uh, he he got uh, ahead. And his overall time, this just shows how long it is. 358 miles, 26 hours and 36 minutes. And they went the roads like today. I mean, when you interviewed Barry, he was talking about 40 kilometre stretches of just normal road being cobbled. Yes. Cobb cobbles were luxury in those days. A lot of these would be... Actually, it's funny, we've come full circle. This sounds quite like an endurance gravel race, doesn't it? Yeah, those early races were. I mean, you, you, I've often taken the mickey. You put old pa pictures on. What, what's this gravel cycling? Yeah. I mean, the first Tour of France, the mountain passes, they were gravel roads. Yeah. Um, and often subject to rock falls and great big boulders across them. But, uh, yeah, country roads. I mean, probably in 1891, a lot of the country roads were hard-packed mud. Yeah. Actually, you mentioned the tour there. I, I find it hard to believe, but you've got in your notes that the original plan for the tour was for it to be one of these non-stop races where you just grabbed sleep where you could. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it had escalated. I mean, Paris Brest Paris was uh, seven hundred fifty-eight miles. So popular that a famous French pastry chef created a, a cake, uh, the Paris Brest cake, to celebrate the event. And it's recently been it had a little bit of fame in it was one of the big cakes that the uh, they were given in Bake Off in one of the Bake Off series to cook. My middle son's um, favourite cake. There you go. It? All right. <laughs> um, and the first idea, again, newspaper trying to gain circulation. When they wanted to have a Tour of France, they thought, well, six-day racing is continuous on the track. Why don't we make it a, a, a continuous six-day road race? But, of course, that, that was just would have been too much. Insane. And... Um, so they broke it down into stages. It was one of those ideas that they had, but not for very long. Henri uh, de, de Grange would have loved that kind of stuff. You know, a man who <laughs> thought derailers were for Jesse's. You know, sleeping <laughs> and stopping was clearly for Jesse's as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I tell you, you talked about pacing, and it started with human pacers. It then moved on to a Derny pacer. You know, those yeah. those little uh, motorised bicycles that you see on the track. A lot of controversy just now because they've moved to electric from the petrol-driven <laughs> ones. And it's just not right without the noise, apparently. Um, that's a format which is gone now. I've been thinking about this because initially I was I was slightly puzzled by the whole idea of this race with Dernies. I think it would be great fun to watch on the telly because anybody that's ridden behind, well, a scooter for me or behind you know any kind of motor pacing knows that there's a real skill to both riding behind a, a derny, but also the derny rider themselves has to be almost at one with their, the guy that they're pacing. I think it would be a great format for television. Yeah, I mean, it would those those uh, the the first bikes. I mean, the the Derny bikes were uh, created to to train riders, mm -hmm. um, and by a man called Roger Derny. That's where the name comes from. Um, yeah, and they, the race became Derny paced. It wasn't Derny paced the whole way. The first 120 miles, the riders riding through the night were um, just rode together, and there was a gentleman's agreement that they'd stay together. And uh, the, the pickup town was Chatellerault. And uh, riders have told me it used to, or people, journalists from that era, said that it, it, it looked strange because these guys were all ex-racers, the Derny Pacers, a lot of them, mm -hmm. put on a bit of weight. In fact, you wanted your Derny Pacers to put on a bit of weight because he was bigger to hide behind. Yeah, bigger draft. Bigger draft. And there was actually rules about how many clothes they could wear. They could only wear two layers and it had to be this and it had to be that. 
Um, and the, 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 the bikes were, uh, had a, a large fixed gear on them, mm-hmm. the, the motorized bikes, so that as well as the throttle, which wasn't as sensitive to accelerate and decelerate, the riders, the derny paces could apply a little bit of power themselves so that uh, they could um, accelerate smoothly. Because that's the thing, you don't want to lose your rider. You start to yeah. sort of jerky and everything, the rider goes off. And as soon as the rider's out of that slipstream, Game's over. then they, they struggle. Yeah. Um, but Derny Pacer got some great. I met a Derny Pacer once who told me they said that um, that they had uh, two things a signal ho and no. Ho meant go faster and no meant slow down. Yeah. He says, but I always reckon that if they've got enough breath to uh, to say something, they've got enough breath to go faster. So he always went faster. <laughs> but I mean, that's that. It's teamwork, as it is actually when you watch two riders on the track, for example. I would love to watch that. So I don't think it's going to come back now. I mean, we've got enough drama with people making allegations about electric motors without having Dernies in the situation <laughs> as well. Yeah, they've had powered, souped-up Dernies yeah. and, uh, and all sorts of things that have been going on. Let's move forward to 1963. Um, Tom uh, won the race, and a lot of the reports say it was one of the best Bordeaux-Paris ever. Um, yeah, um, why do you think that was? He was flying that year. He um, he was flying, but he was frustrated because he'd been uh, he'd had a great sp- spring, but not won a classic. He was just uh, as just in one week. He was second in Ghent Bevelgem, well in a two week period. Second in Ghent Bevelgem, third in the Tour of Flanders, fifth in Paris Roubaix. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was second in uh, Paris Brussels. He was uh, tenth in the Flesh Wallonne. Really went for it in Liège, Baston Liège, absolutely, and got a lone breakaway and was only just caught in the last three three thousand meters. Mm-hmm. So he was world number one. He'd won enough UCI points to be world number one. That was a first for cycling, for British cycling. But uh, he'd not won his classic. And like I said, when we talked about Tom, the riders in those days there. Stock market price really was their criterion price, the price they could command mm. for riding criteriums. And without a big win each year, you you'd, your price wasn't high. So he entered Bordeaux Paris, uh, relying on his form to do it. Um, he, the favourites that year were, were him, uh, Peter Post, one of the greatest Derny riders on the track that, that there's ever been. Uh, and Joe Derue, the post of Derue were were Dutch. Yeah. And uh, the race went to plan. Tom was paced by Fernand Wamst, who was the best in the business. Fernand Wamst uh, tragically died a few years later in 1969 in that famous accident where Eddie Merckx hurt his back. He was pacing Merckx on the track in Bois after the 1969 Tour of France. And... Um, that's when Merck said he, you know, it was never the same again. Never the same again, which is frightening, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's but funny when mind. when you were talking to Alan and he said, you know, before his incident with the water pump at, uh, you know, at the Plankerts, he hadn't even felt the pedals. Eddie nope. says that as well before that crash, and the thought of an Eddie Merck's diminished being that dominant. The thought of him without that is just terrifying. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that he'd won the Tour of France that year before the crash by 20 minutes nearly, yeah. so um, it, it would have been, it, it was amazing. Um, but Wamst decided the tactics, and uh, he decided that we were going to just just watch Post and Daru, and uh, there was an early breakaway, didn't do anything. Post had a puncture, Tom 
played the uh, the, the sporting man and didn't didn't attack. Uh, but what he did, what Wams did, was wait till Post had got almost back and then went. Oh. Tom was Tom was quickly, so it didn't look like it was he was taking advantage, but he was taking advantage. Um, it was also interesting as well because Post and Tom didn't get on at all. They'd already had an actual fist fight in the Zurich six day the previous winter. So uh, one of the few pros that, that Tom just didn't get on with at all. And I mean, later in the TI rally years, they used to say that uh, Post didn't like the Brits, but he, I think it started a lot earlier than that. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, Alan Piper as well talked about Peter Post. It's, it goes to that complicated character thing that we, we've often talked about. Um, just because you, you like someone as a rider, it doesn't mean they'll get on with absolutely everybody. And I, I th- something like the peloton, there's always going to be tensions between riders. Yeah, yeah. And uh, th- I mean, th- there's a, th- those tensions are often the reason behind uh, so many different victories, you know, the yeah. fact that... The- a breakaway was stuffed with enemies of somebody else, and uh, and they decided to work together. But Tom, tactically, uh, with Wamst, had done the perfect ride. Physically, he was he was in great condition. Um, he got across to this early breakaway. Again, Post de Roux, they chased, and Wamst very cleverly waited until they nearly got on, and off he went. Yeah. And uh, his attack was 60 kilometres to go in a place called the Chevreuse Valley. Uh, which is famous, famous for another classic we've no longer got. This was the theatre, the Chevreuse Valley, just southwest of Paris, of uh, the Grand Prix des Nations. Yeah. The great, the great time trial. That One Jack of my Ongutil, favourite races of all time. Yeah. Jack Oncatil made his own with nine victories. Yeah. Um, and Tom just cruised to victory. And like I said, won by over five minutes. Um, and Peter Post made a comment at the end that said it's a shame that such a great race has been run won by a small rider mm. which which the uh journalist from Lake Heat couldn't wait to tell Tom so he ran across to tell Tom and said uh, this is what Peter Buss just said he says well just tell him he's the small rider that stuck the five minutes into him <laughs> well that's that's the proper answer to that isn't it it is yeah yeah um the other thing I mean Tom's victory really stands out um but there are some other famous riders who've been linked to this race. You know, if you look at the the winners, it's it's almost a who's who of the sport as it goes through the years. Uh, but my favourite story that you mentioned when we were talking before we were recording uh, was about Jacques Oncatil. Yeah, um, Jacques Oncatil won in 1965. I mean, Louis Zambobé had won it going back through the years. Lots and lots of great riders. Um, and this was probably the 60s was the end of it being regarded as the classic. And I mean, it wouldn't be something that every rider would try and ride every year. There would only be sometimes 20 or 30 riders in it. Mm. The greats would try and win it. The last big winner was probably 1966, the year after with Jan Janssen. Um, and probably 1969 with Walter Godefroot. Yeah. But Ongatil did it in 1965, really, for a publicity stunt. Because the previous year he'd won his fifth Tour of France, and uh, he'd won uh, the Giro and the Tour, repeating Coppi's achievement. So he was really on the face of it at his absolute height. Um, but Raymond Poulidor had really pushed him close in the Tour of France. He was shattered, and he'd had to dig deeper than ever, ever before. And from one, talking to people from that era, I get the feeling that he just didn't want 
to fight Poulidor again in the 65 Tour of France. He didn't want to put himself through that. The problem was this team manager, Raphael Gemignani, had promised the new sponsors, Ford France, that Angotil would ride the Tour and he would would win it. Um, So he was in a little bit of a quandary. So absolutely refusing to ride it, Gemignani came up with this crazy plan. And the plan was that Angotil would ride and win the week-long Dauphiné Libre. It's called the Criterium du Dauphiné now. No, it isn't. It's still called the Dauphiné Libre in my head. No, Ah. it it is just in my head. It's called the Criterium du Dauphiné. But it's like Het Volk. I can't get get my head around Het Newsblatt. No, no, I can't, no. But, um, yeah, the Dauphiné Libre, he would ride that, and then the publicity stunt, and he would win it, the publicity stub would be that it, that race finished in Avignon on the afternoon, uh, Saturday afternoon. The day after, Sunday, at two o'clock in the morning, Bordeaux-Paris would start and Ancatil would ride Bordeaux-Paris and win that. And Gemignani, when he put this to Ancatil, said that Poulidor could win the Tour de France by 10 minutes and still nobody would be talking, they'd still be talking about Ancatil's double. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. He, he had a really, and it just shows the class of Jacques Angotil. He probably still was at his best in the, in 1965. He won uh, Dauphiné Libre uh, in front of Poulidor. It was a rainy, wet race. It was um, ma- mountainous. Angotil won two mountain stages. And I think it was about 5.45 it finished in Avignon. And now here's where it gets really glorious, this story. Um, Ford France were the sponsors of Oncatil's team, so uh, he was picked up at the finish of uh, in Avignon in a Ford Taunus sports car, driven 100 mile an hour, police escort to Nîmes Airport. <laughs> and from Nîmes Airport, now this, this changes, I've been told several times, it goes from everything from a President de Gaulle's presidential jet to a Mirage fighter. Oh, to, please to, let that be true. Well, it was certainly an aeroplane, but I've heard it. I thought it was, I heard the story, it was his presidential jet because de Gaulle really admired um, Angotil. Yeah. When Angotil was being given the Legion d'honneur, uh, one of Angotil, supposed to be one of uh, de Gaulle's staff said, Well, really, should we be giving it to this man? He's, he's talked about doping and he's, he's involved in this and all, involved in that. And, in, and de Gaulle is supposed to have said, How many times has the Marseillaise been played? And the trickle raised to achievements of that man. Yep. He's getting the Jean d'Honneur. Um, so it, it was certainly there was some involvement there. And I, I, I like you, I'd love it to be the Mirage jet. And he arrived about in Bordeaux at 7.30. And waiting for him in the hotel was his two teammates, Jean Stablinski and Vindensen, British rider Vindensen. Big, strong rider. One of the first super domestics... Uh, yeah, and highly valued by Onkatil. Onkatil spoke very highly of Denson. Yes, and uh, also Rick Van, Rick Van Louis. You know, he was he'd done this job for a, quite a few of the great stars, yeah. um, and they were the people he relied on. Vin says that Onkatil, he just sat down. Uh, Vin had he'd just been served his his steak and chips, which is his pre pre evening meal, uh, and Onkatil took it off him because he was starving. He got two hours sleep. And lined up at the start in the dark. Jeez. And Vin says that he was asleep on his bike. 
He said he had to push on Cotille most of the night. He was absolutely shattered. But he sprung to life through whatever means you might uh, yeah. I- imagine. Draw a feeling and, for that one, I think. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the next day, this, the, the, there was there was a battle that that uh, that raged between. Tom Simpson was riding again. Uh, again, he'd had a little bit of a frustrating early part of the year in 1965, so he hoped that Bordeaux Paris would uh, would um, save his that early part of the season. But there's all sorts of skullduggery and trickery that went off in this race. The official story is that Onkatil and Stablinski and Tom got away in a break, and Stablinski and Onkatil kept attacking Tom and uh, eventually tired him out, mm-hmm. and then Onkatil was able to go on to win. But strangely, Tom's best pacer, Fernand Wams, because they had, a, they had a pacer and a spare pacer, his favourite pacer, his derny kept breaking down whenever mm. Onkatil and Tom had to get the other pacer. He didn't, somebody's told me that Wams started to refuse to go past Onkatil. And at one point, there was a ludicrous uh, situation where Onkatil had attacked, Wams wouldn't chase, and Tom chased on his own. And got on Onkatil's wheel, so there was a moat, there was a Derny pacer, there was Jacques Onkatil, and there was Tom on his wheel. That sounds Tom's to me pa- like a brown envelope's changed hands. It does sound a lot like one, and and when you think about, you know, he'd, he'd not had any sleep, and he just won a, a seven day, eight day stage race. It, it, uh, it it's um, and he beat Tom. Yeah. It is a bit far fetched. He, he went on on to win it. Um, there's an interesting story from uh, Vin Nensen told me that after he'd done his domestic bits and the race was raging on at the front, he realised that he'd been on his bike for nine hours, ten hours, and hadn't had a pee. And uh, because on a journey you don't get out of the saddle much, you sat on one in one place, and he was absolutely bursting. I guess we were says, good with this one. Yep, and he got off his bike. Uh, it's suitable for podcasting, isn't it, this story? Oh, yes. Carry on. <laughs> he uh, he got off his bike, went behind a tree, got ready, nothing. He was absolutely bursting. His bladder was full, but nothing. He could not pee because he'd been sat in this same position and he'd crushed or whatever or damaged. Everything was a bit um, bit swollen and a bit... Uh... I'm crossing my legs listening to you, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> and he said he was just in agony. And he, he was screaming at, his, at the soigneur from the Ford France team. He said, I can't pee, I can't pee. So the Zwanya got a flask of coffee, opened the front of his shorts and poured this red hot coffee down and Vin says, I was like a fountain after that. Everything opened up. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I tell you, it's funny. You mentioned Walter Goodafruit. Just as an aside, a lot of people of you know younger than our generation will know him as really uh, Jan Ulrich's minder at mm-hmm. Telecom. Um, and in fact, I've spoken to some people who thought he was German. He yeah. was a Belgian, and he was one of the best Belgians. I mean, it's easy to forget these guys behind the scenes now were often really great pros in their time. I mean, he won, what, two Tours of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix. Uh, he actually won Bordeaux-Paris twice, didn't he? Uh, Green Jersey in the Tour, and Liege-Bastogne-Liege. I mean, he was a hell of a rider, good of fruit. Yeah, really, really great rider. I mean, he was the one who won um, when um, Bordeaux-Paris was changed from May to September, and he won in 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Walter Goddard was, 
it just shows Barry Holman's got a story about him, and it just shows you how um, different our attitudes were with British cyclists and, and European cyclists. Because the British cyclists then went across there, came from a club world and went touring first. I mean, Barry used to go touring and, and, and just love of riding the bikes. Mm-hmm. And the Belgians did it as a business. And uh, Barry says that every year he used to try and have a month off, but after a couple of weeks, going stir crazy in in November. And it was a fine day. He'd want to go out for riding his bike. And uh, he was coming back into Ghent this day, and a big black Mercedes came alongside him. Walter Goldfrey says, Barry, what the hell are you doing? What are you riding your bike for? You're trying to get fit early, are you? He says, no, i just come for a bike ride. I want to see the birds. And uh, he says, what a bike ride? What do you, what do you mean, you know? <laughs> You didn't ride your bike for pleasure. You rode it to make money. It was it was a tool. Yeah. Um, moving on to later in the race, there's a, a rider that, I mean, people will know the name. He was a good, solid rider, uh, Herman van Springel. And he, he, he won some big races. You know, he won the Grand Prix de Nation that we talked about. Um, he won Het Valk and, and Lombardia. But this race became his in the way that in the 80s, Paris-Nice was Sean Kelly's. You know, he he just seemed to have a, a talent and an affinity for this race, and he won it. Was it seven times? Yes, seven times. Uh, I mean, the opposition was less, but I mean, he was a great rider and very strong, and and probably would have had an uh, even more a career with more victories if he hadn't ridden for Merckx. He was one of the many top riders that Merckx. Because we've said this before, and Barry said it when we interviewed him, Merckx was the greatest rider, but he had one of the greatest teams, yeah. and he would pay top riders. Um, to ride for him, and they probably made a lot of money, more than maybe if they were winning. Yeah. Um, and and you know, so he had spent a lot of time in the Maltini team, but he, he did make he did make that race his own. I think he trained a lot behind the Derny anyway, as as was a tradition because he comes from the Antwerp area and um, Stan Ockers from up that way. He was one of the first that used to use the um, Derny pacer a lot. Stan Ockers would ride from Antwerp. Uh, Sandakers was a green jersey in the Tour of France. He was second ones, and was actually the boyhood idol of uh, of Eddie Merckx. Yeah, uh, he would ride from uh, Antwerp to Namur and back behind a a Derny pace. That's a long old training ride. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, he, he he's a rider, I think, who maybe just saw this as something that he could build his Palmares on and enjoy Derny pacing. Because I think a lot of those guys who, if they'd started being on their own, because they'd ridden with Mercs, even though they were one of the best, I think it probably destroyed their winning spirit a wee bit. I wouldn't, yeah, and I wonder if it, uh, it, it destroyed a little bit of their tactical nous for searching out the right the right breakaways yeah. and, uh, and, and things like that. Because, um, I mean, Jos Breuer, who took over... Uh, was a great, great domestic for Merckx, a younger one, much yeah. younger than uh, Van Springle. He, when he got his chance to lead and, and had the yellow jersey in the Tour of France, he just he, he looked lost. He looked <laughs> because the boss wasn't there anymore. Yeah, um, and we see it even now with people like Richie Port, I think. You know, yep. a rider who on power is perfectly capable of going toe-to-toe with Chris Froome. But I think I spent so long as a super domestique, you maybe just lose, you just lose that edge. And I think that's maybe what happened with Van Sprinkle. Yes, I think it was. Um, he certainly didn't win much after his time with Merckx, apart from, apart from Bordeaux Paris. Yeah. Just think how many miles he did. Yeah. 
Dear God, that's a lot of miles on race bikes. Mm. Why did the race end? I mean, we, 1988 ended. Was it just the other things? I mean, that for me is the period when the elephant in the room was really becoming the tour. You know, the organisation yeah. of the tour were pushing it so hard that it was starting to become, you know, the black hole at the centre of cycling, really. Um, yes, this... Was it a side effect of that? I think a little bit uh, also. The, the, it, it did require a bit of specialist training. Um, I can remember Paul Sherwin training for it, and he rode it and uh, saying that he had to ride races and ride afterwards and ride before behind mm-hmm. the journey. Um, it, people were not as switched on to distance uh, as they were when it first started. And the races, even the Tour of France stages were becoming shorter. The longer stages were getting split into split stages. So it's just the, the taste of fans and the, the interest. Plus, organising one big race from Bordeaux to Paris without, you know, all the roads that needed closing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's an age-old problem that we've been hearing for the last 30 or 40 years. And, and it dwindled and it became something that uh, a guy like Van Springle would keep his notoriety. Um, lesser riders might think, well, I'll have a go at it, see if I can win it. Uh, Gilbert Duclos-Lasalle won in 1983. Mm-hmm. It get, you know, that's before he got to his best. It, it was seen as a, a young, young man could maybe make his name in it or, or an older rider could perhaps get some glory when he'd not won very much. And... Um, it slowly petered out, got less and less people in it. Some of the magic went when the Dernies, because the original crop of Dernies were still from the 1940s and 50s and they were getting more and more unreliable. Um, there was nobody making Dernies. Uh, so they had to start using little Honda buzzy bikes and the sound wasn't right. Yeah, you know, I know this sounds strange, but the, the old Derny sound and the Derny in a track uh, sounded different and more magical sound and more what we connected with great riders yeah. uh, so it, it just it just went went its course and in 1988 that was the the last um border border paris as a professional race yeah i mean a lot of these old professional races and i'm thinking particularly of paris brest paris have reinvented themselves really as mega sportives um but again in that in that realm Paris Brest Paris, the you know it's the Tour de France of of long distance randonneering, yes. so you know there, there'd be no reason really to to try and pimp uh, Bordeaux Paris because you know the big boy's already there. Oh, yeah. Chris, another fascinating show. Thank you very much. Um, okay, where can people find you on the internet? Right, uh, yes, uh, www.cyclinglegends.co.uk. Um, we've got books for sale on there that we've written, and um, there's lots of free stories to read. And um, lots of plans to do other stuff. Yeah, I Thank mean, you. we we were talking yesterday about um, things like Zoom. You've got ideas with that. Um, one thing I'm finding about this lockdown is it's making people who are naturally creative think outside the box a wee bit more. So I think things will look very different when we come out the other side. Yes, I think so. I think the cycling media is changing a lot, and it's we're changing the the way we do things. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Actually, I mean, it's it's. It's going to be a good time for cycling. Um, yeah. It's a terrible time for the country and, and the, the deaths, and you know, it's awful. Um, but the, 
the tiny little ray of, of goodness that might come for it was it's a good time for cycling. And finally, um, it looks like the government are getting behind people commuting and using the bike as as their, as their a form of transport, a preferred form of transport. Yeah. Um, so it's a new age for cycling. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, we'll be back very soon with another edition of the Chris Sidwell Show. Um, and thanks for listening. Thank you.